You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Washington Post Live's first look offers a smart inside take on the day's politics. In this episode, host Jonathan Capehart sits down with Dan Balls, Donna Edwards, and George Will to talk about the infrastructure vote on the Hill. Let's listen. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. So much drama at the U.S. Capitol yesterday from averting a government shutdown to late-night maneuverings between House and Senate Democrats over the reconciliation bill. And there's no better person to have on this morning to explain what the heck is happening than the chief correspondent for The Washington Post, Dan Baltz. Dan, welcome to, well, yeah, welcome back to First Look. Thank you, Jonathan. Quiet morning, right? Right. And, and if I seem a little manic and crazed, it's because, you know, sitting glued to my phone, tapping out messages to sources, trying to figure out what is happening. So the bill, the, the vote on both the bipartisan infrastructure bill and whatever was supposed to happen with the reconciliation bill was or framework was put off uh, until today. And so now it's today. Dan, what's the state of play? Well, the state of play is uh, there's continuing disarray. Um, I think you can look at yesterday as both, um, you know, a lack of progress and perhaps some some forward progress. I mean, the lack of progress, obviously, is that uh, Speaker Pelosi had to pull or, or delay the vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which had been scheduled for a vote yesterday, um, which the moderates in the in the House had very much demanded and wanted but which the progressives threw up a wall of opposition and it forced Pelosi to back off. Um, so that's the bad news for the Democrats. I think the good news is that there is a little bit more clarity uh, about kind of the parameters of the reconciliation bill. I mean, there's still a tremendous amount of negotiation that will have to go on. Um, but uh, but Senator Manchin made clear that he had, he had let uh, Chuck Schumer and the president know some time ago that 1.5 trillion, not 3.5 trillion, uh, was his his uh, ceiling. Now we will see where the negotiations go on that. That's certainly going to be uh, seemingly unacceptable to the progressives. Um, but we will now have essentially a big negotiation uh, that will involve the president, that will involve uh, Mansion and Senator Cinema, uh, Schumer. Pelosi, uh, maybe Bernie Sanders, who has a voice in all of this, and other progressives. So um, they will have to figure out the framework, at least for the reconciliation bill, before they can really move forward on anything else. And I, and I want to acknowledge um, to, to the audience that even as we're having this conversation, it's sort of like, um, you know, like in the circus when you have the bear trying to balance itself on the ball, trying to walk around. Like we're having this conversation but as we're having the conversation, the conversations on the Hill are happening right now. So rather than focus on, on specifics, because quite frankly, we don't have very many, let's talk about personalities. We know where Senator Joe Manchin is kind of on all of this, Senator from, from West Virginia, but there's another Senator involved in all this, and that's Senator Kirsten Sinema of Arizona. And one of the big complaints coming out um, from, from the Capitol this week is no one knows where she is, what she wants uh, in terms of either a number or provisions in the bill. Why do you think she's been so silent? She has worked um, throughout this entire process um, quietly and diligently. I, I, I spoke with someone recently 
um, who said that the Republicans who were involved in the in the negotiations over the bipartisan infrastructure package um, came away quite impressed with her um, as someone who took her role quite seriously, um, wasn't looking to be, you know, in the spotlight. And in, in a sense, Senator Manchin plays that role. He's, he's out talking constantly. She is not. Um, I don't know that she is very far away from where Senator Manchin is on this. My guess is that they are pretty close to one another. Uh, and yet she obviously operates in her own realm. And so I don't think that anybody can take her for granted. Um, and the White House has been talking to her with some regularity to try to uh, figure out exactly what her bottom lines are. But um, the hers are a little bit murkier than, than Manchin seem to be at this point. And let's talk about the president, because it didn't seem like the White House was directly engaged until late last night when um, it was revealed that Susan Rice, I believe Brian Deese from the White House were huddled with Senator Manchin. Uh, I'm not sure if Senator Sinema was there, but huddled with folks on Capitol Hill and the speaker trying to hammer out some kind of, some kind of framework. How important is it that the White House is now directly engaged in these talks? Well, Jonathan, this is the president's program. Um, this is not, you know, this is not Joe Manchin's program or Nancy Pelosi's program or, you know, Bernie Sanders' program. Frankly, it is it is the proposal that the president of the United States put forward earlier this year, um, and I think that the Democrats recognize that ultimately it's going to be incumbent on the incumbent of the White House uh, to play a decisive and leadership role. In, in essence, um, rather than kind of waiting to see where Joe Manchin is and where the progressives are and all of that, um, there, there seems to be a growing hunger in Democrats I've talked to for the president to step forward, uh, if not in a, in a public setting, at least in these private negotiations, to basically say, this is the program, this is the level of spending that I really want, uh, let's try to make this happen. And so um, I, I, I expect that there will be continuing and growing pressure on the president to play that role. Dan, what kind of signal would it send to um, to Washington, not just Democrats, but to the nation, if the president were to go to the Capitol today? Well, I think it would it would signal that you know, a a sense of urgency on his part, but b I, I suspect that it would signal that they are close to a negotiation. Um, I don't think that he can he can go up to there. Um, and kind of, you know, begin uh, a round of negotiations that aren't focused on coming out with a deal. I think that those are the those are the discussions that go on in the White House when people are are going down to the White House to talk with the president and, and some of his aides. If he goes up to the Hill, uh, either they've pretty much got a framework and he is selling it um, to particularly House Democrats at this point, um, with you know, obviously with. The, with the strong voice of Speaker Pelosi. I think that the two of them will have to sell whatever this framework is that they work out with, with Manchin and Cinema. They will have to sell it to House progressives. And the House progressives showed yesterday that they're prepared to flex their muscles. Um, how much and how far they will go on that, we still don't know. I mean, there are just so many moving pieces, as you suggest, Jonathan. Mm -hmm. You know, I mentioned the silence of Cinema a moment ago, but you know who else has been silent in all of this? Republicans. Dan, you have covered Washington for a very long time. 
try briefly try to explain to folks who are watching why it's significant that Republicans have lately basically just stepped back and watched the show. Well, there's an old saying in politics that if your opponents are digging themselves into a hole, just stand back and let them dig. Um, I mean, it, it, it is ironic in a sense that um, what we have right now uh, is Democrats fighting with Democrats. Um, you know, President Biden promised that he was going to unite the country. He's united Republicans uh, against the reconciliation package, um, and he has divided Democrats or Democrats are divided over it. Um, and so I think Republicans are quite happy uh, to see a Democratic Party fighting uh, internally over what this package should look like. I mean, I think their view is that that the more that that the longer that that goes on without uh, an agreement, and the, and the the sharper the words between the progressives and the moderates, uh, the better it will be for Republicans uh, in the midterm elections. Now we're you know we say this all the time. We are a very long way away from knowing what the climate is going to be like, you know, a year from today, um, when we'll be a month out from the midterm elections. Um, but as of now, Republicans are enjoying watching the Democrats struggle. And fi final question for you, Dan, and, and, and that is this real quickly. If, if there's no vote on either the bipartisan bill or the reconciliation bill, how damaging irreparably, perhaps, is that to President Biden's, the rest of his term? Well, it's terribly damaging, Jonathan. I mean, we can't quantify what the cost of that would be, but we know it would be enormous. I, I had a conversation with someone this week who said, we know the consequences of failure. He was talking about this in a, in a political context mm -hmm. uh, and an election context. We know the consequences of failure what he said was, we don't quite know what the consequences of success are going to be, which is to say, if they get this, how much upside is it politically for them? Um, and I think that also is an unanswerable question right now. They have to get it done, and yet they don't quite know what getting it done will do for them. <laughs> right, right. Dan, Dan Paltz, you know, this always happens when, when we're together. A whole lot to talk about and not enough time. Thank you for coming back to First Look. Thanks, Jonathan. We're, we're going to keep this conversation going um, with our Opinions Roundtable. Thanks again, Dan. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find my colleagues, Washington Post columnists, Donna Edwards and George Will. George, Donna, welcome to First Look. Donna, I'm going to start with you. Um, and let's talk about this delayed vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill and pick up the conversation that I just had with Dan in that get your view on how damaging uh, is it that Democrats are arguing with each other over legislation that everybody wants, it seems. Well, it's so interesting that from the outside, it looks like arguing with each other. And to me, it looks like legislating. And so I think that it is uncomfortable to watch this. But, I but you know, if you look at where Democrats are, I mean, it is a big tent party, and these are inevitably the kinds of discussions that are going to be very intense, especially at the end, as you get to the end. And so I would say, you know, hold your powder until the final negotiation. And I believe that if they can get this through, and I think that they can, that they're going to be a unified party talking about what they're delivering for the American people. And so, um, you know, whether a vote comes today, and I'm not really sure a vote 
can come today given you know where they are but you know there are 24 hours in a day and they have until midnight um to you know to finish these negotiations today i don't think it's really damaging frankly to hold it over to the weekend progressives are very clear about what they want and i think uh yesterday's delay demonstrates the clarity of the positions of moderates and progressives and there's a lot of negotiating going on right now you know, George, um, it's interesting, you know, Donna has, um, and Donna is a former member of Congress, let's put that out there. So, you know, she's been a part of this and she says that this looks like legislating. Have we so, has we so forgotten what legislating look like, looks like that, um, the, okay, I'll just speak for myself, the sort of the hysteria over watching what's happening is kind of foreign and and I just put that out there because I'm also wondering your your viewpoint on this. Why? What do you make of Republicans being so uncharacteristically quiet during the mayhem that we've been through the last few hours? Well, I'll, I'll paraphrase what Dan Bolt said to you. Napoleon said, when your enemy's destroying himself, don't interfere. Uh, <laughs> I don't think the Democrats are destroying themselves. I think Don is right. This is what legislating looks like. And by the way, with regard to Senator, the maverick senator from Arizona, if memory serves, it wasn't that long ago that Democrats were absolutely thrilled by a maverick senator from Arizona who was bucking his party. That was called John McCain. Uh, so uh, there's some selective indignation here. Now, I, like 98% of the members of Congress, don't know what's in this bill that is costed uh, officially at $3.5 trillion and unofficially at more than $5 trillion. I don't know, for example, if the tax credit for purchases of electric bicycles is still in it. But it is. it, it seems to me fanciful to say that the American people want this bill when, in fact, as I say, the provisions of it are, are to say no more opaque. The uh, Dan Bolt said to you a moment ago, there's a clear downside if they don't get it, and that what's unclear is how much upside there would be. I'm not absolutely convinced there's an upside to this. If you pass this, and if you have inflation accelerate next year, inflation already in the last 12 months has taken away the wage gains of, uh, of working class Americans in the last year. If you have inflation coming on the heels of this and the American people say cause and effect, I'm not sure that uh, having your fingerprints on $5 trillion of excess spending is an upside. Uh, do you wanna to respond to that, Donna? Well, I mean, I think that what will happen is that people will begin to know right away what's in the, what's in this uh, package. Uh, things like the child tax credit, those those things go right back into the economy. Even a credit for electric bikes, you buy an electric bike that goes right back into the economy. And so I think there, there actually is a lot of upside uh, once the package is passed. And I think Democrats from you know, day one on passage will be able to run on the elements of the bill that make a, that make sense for people in individual congressional districts and in states. And I think they will be unified in that. And they will have a president who is delivering on his agenda. And I and and you know, trust me, once this is done, the American people are going to know what's what's in it. Democrats, frankly do know what's in this in this package and especially the 
broad range of things that are going to make a difference. Climate, you know, action on climate change that Americans more broadly agree we have to take some action on. And so I am really convinced that there is an upside to Democrats. They just got to get through the hurdle of the sausage making and deliver the sausage. George, you had a call. Yeah. I would be more convinced that the American people want this if I believed that uh, Mr. Biden and his progressive allies thought the American people wanted it. The reason I'm skeptical is his going in position, his first statement is 98.2% of you are not going to have to pay for this. Now, if they really wanted it, wouldn't you say you could ask some of the people making less than $400,000 a year to pay for it? Uh, so the fact that, that he, I mean, obviously free stuff polls well, but if you have to say it's free, no one has to pay for it. How much, how certain are you that people really want this? Donna, is it, is it, is it, go, go ahead. No, I, I don't think it works that way at all. People who are making under $400,000 have been paying for everything. And so, and you know, including, um, the $7 trillion or so of debt that was run up in the last administration. And so, um, you know, when you deliver a child tax credit, uh, people understand that that is about eliminating child poverty and about helping individual American families, uh, community college education, people will put back into the economy because, you know, they've gotten the skill set that's needed for the 21st century dealing with climate with climate change and trying to ensure that we can have an economy that's not based on fossil fuels that are destroying our environment um anybody who lives on a coastline and sees this and can experience a sea level rise the fires the extreme weather events that we've been happen we've been having and so i think there's a lot um in this in this package and you know the priorities are there and now uh, it's up to Democrats to attach the numbers to those priorities that are going to get, you know, 50 votes in the Senate and a majority in the House. George, you wrote a column this week, which is a bit of a, a not a bit, a huge cautionary tale for Democrats. You wrote this week how President Johnson's Great Society programs was a gift to Republicans. Talk more about that. Well, in 1964, I cast my first presidential vote for Barry Goldwater, who went out and lost 44 states. And in the aftermath, they said, gosh, is there a future for the Republican Party? They'll never recover from this. The Republican Party won five of the next six presidential elections, in part because Lyndon Johnson, having acquired enormous congressional majorities as a result of the anti-Goldwater landslide, uh, tried to put in place the entire wish list of uh, Democrats who'd really not had a liberal legislating majority in Congress since the recoil in 1938 against Roosevelt's court packing plan. He got his majorities, he got his wish list, and the Republicans had an enormous gain in 1966, and as I say, won five of the next six presidential elections. So because it's, it's an old, old political axiom. Be careful what you wish for. Donna? Well, only if you're just thinking about politics and not thinking about um, doing the right thing by the American people. You take a look at those great society programs. And in fact, you know, they're still alive today. The American people um, appreciate them. I remember when my grandmother did not have health care and when, um, you know, Medicare uh, Medicaid uh, came, came, it delivered 
healthcare to her. And so, uh, you know, I just, I am convinced that Democrats right now are thinking about not the short term, they're thinking about the long game and the importance of delivering for the American people. And just like the Affordable Care Act, um, many Democrats lost their seats. Democrats ended up losing their majority. The Affordable Care Act is still in place now, delivering health care for millions of people. That's what's really important in this fight, and not whether you win an election or other. Donna, I want to talk about a, a column you wrote. <clears throat> um, you wrote um, a column critical of Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell, saying he was playing politics, pure politics, with the debt ceiling. I agree with you on that. Um, but you also argue that he's possibly giving Democrats a justification to get rid of the filibuster. Explain. Well, I think Democrats have had a lot of reasons to get rid of the filibuster, <laughs> but this idea that we would default on our obligations, bills that we've already run up, bills that were run up actually on a bipartisan uh, basis and not pay those pay those bills, that is a, you know, a basic function of government, just like keeping government open, paying our our bills so that it won't result in a long-term cost for the American people. And I think in order to do that, it shouldn't be done in reconciliation. It should be done the way that it's happened uh, over and over again, actually with bipartisan uh, support. And if Democrats can't get that support from Republicans who actually, Mitch McConnell acknowledged the importance of raising the debt ceiling and then said, but I'm not delivering any votes for that. Well. That is the kind of cynicism that Democrats should not tolerate. Get rid of the filibuster, add the uh, debt ceiling, and while they're at it, do voting rights and uh, police reform and other Democratic priorities. Trust me, if Mitch McConnell were in charge, and we know <laughs> when he was, he'll break every single rule in order to move forward an agenda. And I think that Democrats right now should not hold back. I mean, we and we've seen it, but George... I, I see the glint in your eye and the little the curvature of a smile on your face. Have added. Should the filibuster should the filibuster be gotten rid of? No, it should not be gotten rid of. And I'm mystified as to what the filibuster has to do with raising the debt ceiling. Uh, the debt ceiling can be raised with 50 Democratic votes plus uh, Vice President Harris. Go ahead and do it. Uh, the filibuster has nothing to do with this. Well, only in reconciliation. And I think reconciliation right. is not a vehicle uh, for raising the debt ceiling and not defaulting on our obligations. And so in that regard, it could be done with 50 plus one votes by not you know, having uh, the Republicans have the ability to stop even debate on this, on this issue and moving forward. I, I think it's you know, really disingenuous to the American people who would, at the end of the day, if we end up defaulting, uh, will have higher interest rates, higher costs for the uh, for the debt. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's just not appropriate. And Republicans, Democrats have actually always delivered um, votes for raising the debt ceiling, even with Republican president, even, you know, in, under circumstances where there was a Republican majority um, in the House and the Senate. And so, you know, Republicans should stop playing politics with um, with our, our our debt limit and increasing the debt ceiling. I mean, it's really pretty simple and straightforward, I think. George, should we even have a debt ceiling? Aren't we the only uh, nation that has this thing? Yeah, we could do without the debt ceiling, but there it is. And the, <laughs> the argument for retaining it or is that 
in in fact it does for it's a it's an action forcing device at least a debate forcing device that does concentrate uh, fleetingly albeit does concentrate attention on the fact that we are now increasing the national debt in trillion dollar tranches and maybe maybe we ought to be reminded of that periodically um, we have a little bit of time left. You caught me, you caught me cheating here because I'm seeing seeing some news about the Supreme Court uh, and Justice Kavanaugh testing positive for COVID. Uh, and I was already going to ask a question about the Supreme Court. Uh, the term begins on on Monday. They're going to be hearing um, a very controversial uh, abortion rights case out of Mississippi. Donna, how concerned are you that that case, this upcoming term, could lead to the ending of Roe v. Wade. Well, I'm very concerned, and I think, especially given the uh, the court's position on the um, on the Texas abortion um, cases and case, and I think that uh, Democrats and those who believe Democrats and Republicans and independents, frankly, who believe that a woman should have a right um, to make decisions about her own body. Um, should be concerned about uh, the Supreme Court. Again, we're legislating matters. Democrats in the uh, um, in the Congress should be able to pass, um, uh, you know, to codify Roe v. Wade, uh, so that we can take it out of the hands of the United States Supreme Court. And George, re real quickly, if you have a reaction to what Donna said, but um, are 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 liberals and and abortion rights activists. Um, are they warranted in their concern about what could happen to Roe v. Wade this term? I think it, it, the, the interesting question is, why did the Supreme Court choose to take this case? And the case now does pose a direct challenge to Roe v. Wade, so I think they should be concerned. I'll tell you who's hysterical, it seems to me, quietly hysterical probably about this, are about 8,000 state legislators in this country. Because overturning Roe v. Wade, it is well to remember, would not outlaw abortion. It would restore it to what it was for 200 and some years of American history as a, as a, as a subject regulable by state legislatures. So they'd have to step up and, and act like legislators and take charge of it. You want to take this out of the hands of the Supreme Court, you put it in the hands of state legislatures. And uh, I'm not sure they look forward to that. Yeah, I don't, um, I'm not sure our constitutional rights should be in the hands of state legislators. Yeah, I was gonna. <laughs> we we've got less than thirty seconds, but you know we could have a whole states' rights conversation. But that's just gonna have to wait for another time. Donna Edwards, George, will <laughs> we gotta go? Thank you both very much for coming to First Look. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, head head to WashingtonPostLive.com to find more information about our pro upcoming interviews and to register. I'm Jonathan Capehart. Thank you for watching Washington Post Live's First Look. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.